Uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 1. And so turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read that in, in just a, a moment here. Um, but we're, we've been unpacking a series on how change happens in the life of a Christian. And I want to start with a, just a, a kind of a, a question that's a part of a subject that we're going to get into through the course of this sermon. But I want to plant the seeds now so you can start thinking um, as we get into this. And the question is perhaps a tender one for some of you, but, but uh, what, what, are, what are your deepest regrets in life? We're going to talk about regret as a point of application in this. Uh, and it leads us down roads of, of, of sorrow, <clears throat> brokenheartedness, guilt, uh, a feeling of being just, just trapped by decisions that we've made and little hope of, of freedom from them. So we're going to talk about that, but what are your regrets is the question I want to just plant there now. What does the Bible say my life is supposed to look like and why doesn't it? That's kind of the thrust of what we've been working through for the last couple of weeks. And we're unpacking these opening verses of 2 Peter in which Peter tells us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, everything that you need for life and godliness has already been given to you. God has supplied you with everything that you need for life and godliness. God has given us everything in Christ, and he's done it so that the lives that we live here would be in this face-to-face -face delight and adoration and worship of him through our days on this earth. That he's, it's a very relational thing that he's given us. He's not just equipped us so we can go out and be worker bees and do things, but he's equipped us so that we can know him and delight in him and live our lives out of this place of being known and loved by the maker and lover of our souls. So how do we do this? Peter says we do this through participating with the divine. This is a term you're going to see. He, calls, he says we become partakers with the divine. In other words, what he's saying is God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness in order that the life that you live on this earth would be one that you live in participation with him. So how do we do this? That's what Peter's writing about here in, in this opening chapter, and he's giving us a description of how to do that, of what it looks like. And he's also giving us a little bit of a sequence for what to bring into play that he's given us as we participate with God in the art of living well. And so we're going to read the passage now. I've asked my friend Andrew Peterson to come and read this passage. Andrew is a Midtowner. For how long have you been a part of Midtown? Like nine years. Nine years. Some of you weren't even born. And uh, Andrew's a friend of mine, and we're, he's going to read the passage. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, Andrew. This sequence of things, this add to your faith virtue or goodness as we talked about it last week or obedience is another word that we could use there. This sequence is what we're kind of working our way through. And uh, we talked last week about what it means to add obedience to faith. And we noted that in the sequence of things that Peter gives us here, that obedience comes before knowledge, which is really interesting and troubling. Why? Well, it, it asks this question, what makes God's commands worthy of our obedience, especially if we don't feel like we really understand them? That's the question. And the answer that we talked about last week is the answer is God's commands are worthy of our obedience even when we don't feel like we completely understand them because of who God is, because of who the one, that, who, who the one is that's giving us these instructions. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we trust not because a God exists, but because this God exists. See, the God of the Bible is the one who made us, knows us, loves us, has made us for himself, to which St. Augustine said, oh God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So God's commands are worthy of our obedience because they come from the one who says, I work all things together for the good of those who love me. Now this makes us nervous because why should anyone obey anything that they don't completely understand? However, this is kind of a way that the Lord checkmates the heart if we're asking this question. What do I mean by that? Isn't it dangerous to just go into blind obedience, blind submission? Is that what he's calling us to? Well, what we're going to talk about today, add to your obedience knowledge, assures us that God isn't calling us to blind obedience, but he's calling us to an obedience that is anything but thoughtless. We're called to be unrelentingly thoughtful about what we believe and why. In other words, Peter's saying to Christians, think Think, be lifelong students, lifelong students, seeking to understand the faith in which your hope rests. Still, though, he's got this sequence where he says that the way that you participate with the divine is that you add to your faith obedience, and you add to your obedience knowledge. And again, we know that he's not saying of obedience and knowledge, that these are things outside of what God has provided for you, that God wants me to obey. I need to go off by myself and figure out what that means and come back to him and then try to do it. And I need to go off and learn things and come back and try to show him all the things that I know because he's just told us everything that you need for life and godliness, he's already given you. So the description here that he's telling us to add these things to our faith is he's saying, the Lord has given you everything that you need. Now pick it up and start using it. Start engaging with it. Start participating with the Lord in these things that he's provided for you. And in the sequence, he says, obedience is first. Obey God even when you don't feel like you understand the reason for the command. And this brings us to an important, important lifelong principle. And that is this. There is no command that God will ever give you that you will ever fully understand this side of glory. There is no command he will give you that you will say, I will obey that because I understand it fully. For example, thou shalt not steal. 
It's an example, right? We all, I'm going to just, if, I, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, we all steal in one way or another. Some of us steal money. Some of us steal credit. Some of us steal glory. Some of us steal true words from people and replace them with twisted words in order to steer things in the way we want them to go. But there's something there where we are just driven and motivated by this desire to attain things that aren't rightfully coming to us. And the Lord says, you shall not steal. And all of us on some level can say, okay, that means I'm not allowed to swipe the wallet of the person next to me because that's wrong, it's not my money. None of us, I think, would be comfortable to say that's the extent of what the Lord means in this command, that he just means don't take things that aren't yours. Because when you take things that aren't yours, fissures begin to form in the foundation of the world in which you live. Relationships begin to fracture and break in profound ways. Trust begins to crumble. Reputations begin to be formed as being a person that... I need to be careful with you because I don't know that you're going to trust me and extend to me the dignity that I need. When the Lord says don't steal, he's not simply saying don't steal a wallet. He's saying understand that in this creation in which I've placed you, to live in relationship with me and others in a godly way means that If you're taking things from people that are theirs and not yours and you're making them your own and you're doing it dishonestly, whether it's material or relational or or verbal or whatever, the damage that you're doing and the fracturing of relationships extends far beyond just you and that person. And if you're in this room and you've been robbed, you know what I'm talking about. The person who stole from you took more than the thing that they stole. So, God gives us commands. We understand them to an extent, but never do we really, this side of glory, understand with our earthbound perspective all that he means by it. So that should free us to say, okay, I can obey without complete understanding because my need to obey, my response to obey, the credibility in the command doesn't reside with me understanding it fully, but it comes from really who's the one who's giving the command and can I trust them? So that's where, where we are and, and, and Peter's calling us to this. This, this. His ways are higher than your ways, Isaiah 55, 9. And then that said though, there's this beautiful truth about the gospel that Christ means to change you. He means to transform our lives by the power of his grace at work in us. And in this process, he calls us then, okay, now study, now think, now use your mind, engage with truth, discern. Nowhere does God simply call his people to blind obedience. He calls us to this deeply contemplative obedience. Add to your obedience knowledge. And add to your goodness knowledge. Think, Peter is saying. Think, study, and think. It's worth our time this morning to dig a little bit into the life of the one who is giving us these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter. He was one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. He was the second disciple of Jesus Christ. His brother Andrew was first, and then Peter came next, and then James and John. So he's been with Jesus for Jesus' 
pretty much Jesus' entire earthly ministry. This book is written probably 30 to 35 years after the resurrection of Jesus. What that means is, when Peter's writing the words that we just read, he's probably 60 to 70 years old. So he's an old man writing with this perspective of a life lived. And he's not just an old man writing with the wisdom of age, but he's also in prison. And he's in prison waiting for a decision on his fate. See, back in those days, the Roman prison system wasn't the kind of system where you would commit a crime, you would be charged with treason or whatever, and you would be arrested, and they would say, all right, your, your punishment is 15 years in prison. It didn't work that way. It was, we're going to put you in prison, and then we're going to decide what to do with you. And it's not going to be, you're going to rot in a jail cell. It's, we're going to put you in stocks in front of everybody, and you're going to be a laughing stock, or we're going to cut off your hand, or we're going to kill you. I think there might have been more, but those are three of the dominant ones. So when you're in prison in Rome, nothing good is about to happen. And it's not that you're just going to sit there. So he's writing as an old man in this prison cell while his fate is being decided. But Peter already knows what his fate's going to be. He knows that he's going to be martyred. Later in this first chapter, just several verses later, he says this. Hear this. This is the words of an old man facing death. He writes this. This is verses 12 through 15 in 2 Peter 1. I intend to remind you of the qualities of life in Christ. I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. I bring up his position in life as he writes these words so that we can hear the call to add knowledge to goodness and add obedience to faith. This letter might be Peter's last written words. What we're reading here, they think that this was probably maybe only weeks before he was martyred. Last letter that we have his last written words. So this is what he's given. He's at the end of his days. He's choosing these words carefully and in earnest. He's not wasting anything here. And so he's writing from this vantage point of a life where he has lived out of an informed faith of who Jesus is. But we also know that he's writing from the perspective of a man who has also been impulsively ignorant and arrogant many times in his life of following Christ. So he's not writing from an ivory tower of a perfect record of obedience, from a man who knows what it means to not understand and what that then translates into how he lives. When Jesus first met Peter, he was fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus called him and said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to give your life a purpose that is greater than the purpose that it has right now. I'm calling you to follow me, to walk with me, to live with me. 
and then to be one who goes out into the world and brings the truth of the gospel of salvation to the world. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And Peter was passionate as a follower of Jesus. He was sometimes so exceedingly loyal, had these great, great moments that were his. You know, he's the one who got out of the boat and walked on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. That kind of thing was in him, you know. He was the one when Jesus was saying, who do people say that I am? And they were saying, people say that you're John the Baptist or Elijah or, or one of the prophets. And he said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Peter was the one who spoke. And he said, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, that answer did not come from the wisdom of a man. That answer came from the Holy Spirit himself. It was an awesome moment for Peter, wasn't it? If you read that passage in the Bible, Matthew 16, where he does that, and then you just go down to Matthew, uh, let's see, that was Matthew 16, 16, and you just go down to Matthew 16, 21, it's a very different story. Four verses later, Jesus is saying, the time has come for the Son of Man to be betrayed. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again on the third day, but I have to go do this. And Jesus said, no, no, may that never be. To which now Jesus said, Peter, that comment was also not from the wisdom of a man. Get behind me, Satan. So Peter had these moments of, of trial and, and, and suffering and, and failure. He was this man who knew impulsivity. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was arrested, there arose in Peter this zeal. He drew a sword. He attacked a soldier who was arresting Jesus, cut off his ear, as though in that moment he was, he was, he was kind of convinced that he could take on Rome himself. He was also the one who contradicted Jesus when Jesus said, you're going to deny me. One of you is going to deny me. And it's a, a little bit comedic in the way that Peter responded. See, they're in the upper room. It's Thursday night before Jesus is crucified. He has his disciples around, and he says, one of you is going to deny me. And they're all looking at each other like, is it me? Is it, am I going to be the one? Is it gonna be? And Peter, but Peter's different. He's the one who's kind of looking around, and he says, this is my paraphrase, and then I'll tell you what he actually said, because it's kind of the same thing. But they all kind of looked around at each other, and Peter spoke up, and he said, even if all these jokers here do, I won't. What'd he say? He said, even if all these other disciples fall away, I won't which is totally throwing James and John under the bus and Bartholomew. I mean, right? That's what he's doing. He's saying, I can see James doing that. But I won't. I'll die with you. And then only moments later, in a situation where it cost him very little, he's warming himself around a fire, and a little girl says to him, you, you, I recognize you. You, you. you hang out with Jesus. And he swears. I don't know the man. Regret. Regret. I wonder if the regret in Peter over that was just so poignantly emphasized in his heart 
because of the, the arrogant boast that he would not do this. And then he did. When the rooster crows, he, he weeps over the reminder that Jesus said I would do this, and I did it. After Jesus rises from the grave, he appears to Peter, and he loves him with this confrontation of love. Do you love me? If you've seen that movie, Goodwill Hunting, it's kind of like the scene at the end when the therapist is with the young man who's been abused his entire life, and, he's, and the therapist is saying to him, it's not your fault. He's like, I know it's not my fault, but it's not your fault. I know it's not your fault. I know, you know, and, and, he, and he's boring in deeper and deeper and deeper because he wants the young man to hear it. And with Jesus saying to Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you? Do you love me? And he's just pushing on Peter's heart. And Peter eventually in exasperation says, you know everything. And you know that I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. It's crazy. Because here's this man when he first met Jesus. He said, I'm calling you to care for my people. And he has these great moments and these low moments, these moments of triumph and these moments of incredible regret. And he just blows it, denies knowing him. The unforgivable sin and the resurrected Christ appears to him and reinstates him with this reiteration of his first thing they ever said to him. I'm calling you to take care of my people. That hasn't changed, even though you failed. Because the call in your life, Peter, doesn't rest in your ability to perform well. It rests on my ability to work through you. This is Peter's life. This is the one who's telling us God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness, so add to your faith obedience and add to your obedience knowledge. He sees the world through an old man's eyes. This man who once had a knack for making promises that he couldn't keep based on impulses lacking knowledge is now at the end of his life, and it's a life that he's spent now participating with the divine and what Christ has given him. And where has it brought him? Because I know a lot of us think the objective, right, of walking with the Lord and being obedient to Christ and serving Him and doing what it is that He tells me He wants me to do is that in exchange for that, life gets easier, problems get smaller. Is that just me? Where has participation with the divine taken Peter? It's taken him to a prison cell where he's about to be martyred. And we would say that's terrible. And Peter would disagree with you. Because why? He has knowledge. He would say this. He does say this toward the end of the letter. According to, after he's talked about his body being burned. According to God's promises, he writes... We're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter himself is ready to go, but he has these friends, these young Christians, who are just learning what it means to walk 
in an informed faith, and he's contending for us this morning in these words. He's contending for us. Add to your faith obedience and add to your obedience knowledge or understanding. What does he mean by knowledge? We just have to answer that, don't we, if we're saying add knowledge, because some of us, what we might do is we might drive down to the nearest bar and grill and get one of the little plastic trivia machines and turn it on and start adding knowledge, right? We're starting to just do trivia. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, I know things about Harley Davidson's. I know things about wars. I know things about fruit. I know things. Is that what he is? that the kind of knowledge that he's saying, hey, just go be smart. Be a smart Christian. No, of course not. In fact, Peter talks about knowledge in this letter a lot. It's a theme of this letter. We saw it a couple of times in the verse that we just read. He opens the letter with this. In, in verse 2, 2 Peter 1, 2, he prays this for people. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Do you want that? Grace and peace multiplied to you? He says, may these be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So at the beginning, he's opening with this prayer that grace and peace would just be growing in you. And he's saying, this comes through knowing what? God. Knowing Christ. And then at the end, the last verse, he's back at it with this idea of knowledge. He says in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter wants us to know Christ. This is the knowledge that he means, which is a beautiful thing. He's, in pulling this passage together, what he's saying is that the God of grace who gives you everything that you need for life and godliness, for this relationship with him, is on the basis of who he is alone, worthy of your implicit trust and your willing obedience. However, the truth of that alone should drive you to a place of wanting to know more. I want to understand more deeply. Not like a student who goes to an art museum and walks around Michelangelo's David in order to study that, in order to know Michelangelo better. What he's saying is, no, be with Michelangelo. Don't just study his work. Don't just study the things that he's done. Don't just study the things that he said. Study him. Know him. Be with him. Know the source of the wonder of the creation that surrounds you. See, Peter's talking about this present reality. He's saying there's this kind of knowing that shapes you. It shapes the kind of person that you are. How do we get from knowing to then well, wait, it's shaping my life. It's not just data. It's now transformative. It's working in me. Consider this quote from a theologian named James Sire. He wrote, he wrote this. I think it's helpful. He says, Knowledge in a biblical frame is very different from mere information. Indeed, the discipleship of the mind has two dimensions. The first is logical. We are to follow up on the logical consequences of those things we say we know seeing what is implied by, by what we already realize is true. The second is behavioral. We're to act on what we know. And unless we do both, we do not know in the sense required by the Bible. Why are knowing and acting joined together? Because the biblical idea of knowing is always set in the context of relationship. It always is. To know God is to know who He is in relationship to you. And to know who you are in relationship to him. And then by extension, to know God is to know who you are in relationship to the person sitting next to you. And who they are to you. 
Are they your enemy? Or are they somebody who has implicit inherent dignity because they're made in the image and likeness of God? You see, that's knowing. That's knowing the one who made us. It shapes the way that we live, this knowing Christ. What we do with what we know is what Christian knowing is all about. That's what Os Guinness said. So why is this important for us to take hold of? Do you have that regret in your mind? Where is the gospel call to add to our faith knowledge? It's that we would be knowing Christ more deeply all the time and that our knowledge of him would shape the way that we live. Regret. Regret. There were times in Peter's life when he was filled with regret. He had failed catastrophically. Do you know the power of it? The power of a decision made. How does one even get into a position where they're living out regret? Let me try to say it this way. It happens like this. We see a situation, needs a decision. And so we act on a limited understanding of what's really true, more concerned about this immediate moment and not the future consequences. And so we choose to do something that often, almost as soon as we've done it, we regret. And it just floods in. I could, how am I so stupid? How could I have let myself do that? And then you have to do something with that regret. What am I going to do with it? Am I going to imagine the courtroom of your mind? Accusations are being thrown around. Where does regret sit? Is it the prosecutor? For most of us, it's probably the judge, right? Sits in the judge's seat and tells you, here's who you are, here's what you're worth, here's what you're going to amount to. Why, when it comes to regret, do you need to add to your faith knowledge? We need to know what to do with the heartbreaking choices that we've already made. We need to know what to do with the catastrophic choices that we are inevitably going to make. We need to know where to take them. What do we do with those? How do I regard them? How do I regard myself in light of them? How do I regard God? Am I my mistakes? Are you? Are you your failures? Are you your secret sins? Do you feel like I'm just, I'm, I'm in a disguise and no one knows the real me because no one knows these secret things that I do that I, if anybody found out, oh, the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that would come from that, they would really then know who I am. If you believe that, you believe that your sins are who you are. And Peter is pleading with us. Add knowledge. Add knowledge. You need to know. If you've come up against the tyranny of condemning voices telling you, you know your life, in effect, is over. You're never going to be anything but the rubble of the mistakes that you have made. What can free you from that? Where can you go for help? Add to your obedience knowledge. The gospel is a message with content, 
It's not just platitudes of feel good about yourself. There, it's a story. It's a story of things that have really happened in real time, in real space. That the Lord has lived a life of perfect righteousness in your place that you failed to live, that you couldn't live, that you didn't live, and that he died a substitutionary death for you when your faith is in him, that he took your sins upon himself, nailed them to the cross, so that Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is knowledge. Add to your faith, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because I need that knowledge when I feel that there is a mountain of condemnation for this one who is in Christ Jesus. I need knowledge. What did Jesus say that he would do through Peter? He said he would make him a fisher of men. And when Jesus came into Peter's life, he meant to shape what the rest of Peter's life would look like. And so in coming to know Christ, we come to know not only the rescue of our souls, but also who we really are, and where we need to be rescued. And we need this window of truth into our impulsivity. We need this window of truth into our fears, into our ongoing deceptions and anxieties and grabs for control. We need the truth of the gospel to liberate us from this. And the gospel says, there is such a thing as a true story of redemption and you need to know the truth because the truth sets you free from regret, from guilt, from condemnation. Let me take it even though a step further because it would be very easy for us to stop here and say, okay, we came to church and we heard about the freedom that we find in the gospel to be liberated from the burden and the tyranny of regret. That's great, that's important, that's powerful stuff the knowledge of Christ. But it's also very individual. God to us, he helps me. He's helping me be a, 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 a person who's, who's more liberated in him. But think about this. What if also part of Peter's writing of this to us is not just so that we would be liberated from the failures of our past, but so that when we then are at the end of our days, we look back on a life of having participated with the divine and having found voices to speak into the generations that have come after us, to say to them, the one who calls you to obey is worthy of your obedience because of who he is. So add to your faith obedience and add to your obedience knowledge. And let me tell you who he is. May he use us for that. We find this freedom in the gospel, he gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. So add to your faith obedience and add to your obedience knowledge because this is an invitation to a glorious life of freedom without regret because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, you... Uh, man, you, you knew what Peter would do when you called him to follow you. You knew the stuff he was made of. You knew his impulsivity. You knew his arrogance. You knew his blindness. You knew that he would uh, 
outrun his own ability to uh, see you and know you at times. He would, he would overextend. He would uh, make promises that there was no way in the world he was going to keep. You knew this about him because you know everything. You knew he would deny you and betray you. Father, I thank you right now, just you, the beauty of this, that there is such a beautiful expression of grace in the fact that you would look at Peter before he denied you and tell him you will deny me. And to do it in a way where you're not kick, you didn't kick him to the curb, you didn't tell him that the sight of him disgusted you, you told him this as one who loved him and who knew him. Lord, for us, you know the ways that we will deny you. You know the ways that we will fail. You know the things that we will do that will bring us to our knees with this overwhelming feeling of ruin. You know the ways that we will perhaps not have these dramatic meltdowns, but we'll just become kind of cool people with dead hearts that don't really, that have kind of elected not to feel uh, or not to lean into any of that, you know, heart stuff. You know that about us. You know it. Chase us down. Would we hear the question as Peter did when you asked, do you love me? Then take care of my people. And would you liberate us through the knowledge of what the gospel really says about our regret and our guilt and our condemnation? Would you liberate us to be people who live this life to the very end with this perspective of wanting to see a life filled with participation with you in the great and precious promises that you have fulfilled in us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these people. And uh, Lord, we just give you thanks for the gospel story being real. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.